welcome to the death panel to support the show and get access to all of our weekly monday bonus episodes become a patron at patreon.com slash death panel pod there are literally over a hundred back episodes to catch up on and if you'd like to help us out a little bit more, you can share the show with your family, your friends, your coworkers, and your enemies. Um, post about your favorite episodes, or you could just follow us on social media at yeah. DeathPanel underscore. So uh, later in today's episode, we're going to get into this memo that the White House released this week, which was truly cursed, which About was funding the hey, police. What if we funded them? It was almost like <laughs> encouraging them to like it was like urging them like this is how you should use the yeah. money. Like this is right. Yeah. Do that. Spend five million dollars on cars. So we're going to check in on that in the context of the crime wave hysteria narrative that is being tossed around in the media and the anti-homeless measure is popping up left and right as part of the production of the end of the pandemic, yeah. quote unquote. Truly cursed week. Uh, not just week, but truly cursed episode today. Please <laughs> <Yeah>. enjoy. <laughs> Biden's America is like very seriously taking up a survival of the fittest approach to building back better. You know what I mean? It's pretty yeah. clear. But first, uh, so details are still emerging as the, at the time of recording, but it appears that expansions to Medicare coverage have possibly made it into a reconciliation package agreed upon by Democrats earlier this week. So this is being sold as using the budget process to pass the greatest legislation since the New Deal. Right. Yeah. And it's I mean, wow, just <laughs> I mean, the, a phrase that is I, practically meaningless at this point. Comparisons are my passion. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> What you could say is this is like using the reconciliation process to maybe solve you know, possibly effectively, I don't know, uh, Democrats 2022 problem, right? right? Like the whole point being, you know, get the money out the door quickly, make tangible benefits quickly, you know, uh, target them at constituencies that you're feeling might uh, be places to shore up like, uh, you know, uh, Medicare recipients or something like that uh, for right. 2022. But like the irony of that, though, is that. If that were the case, if the point were getting the benefits out really quickly, the whole feint to like a, you know, faux uh, bipartisan like deal, which which Republicans always had an incentive to bolt from and like, you know, we're never really going to be credibly committed to seems just like really silly because all that does is just delay the money getting out there. Um, right. And so like the idea that like next week when this the text is essentially like do uh quote unquote like Schumer is holding a cloture vote as if they're going to go through with like a normal like 60 vote uh thing on the infrastructure package so it's just sort of um i guess that's the point but like well, yeah new deal uh hmm let's think about that i mean to your point i think that one really important kind of contextual thing here being missed in the sort of you know the big headlines like 3.5 trillion dollar blah 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 expansion to medicare stuff is that there is still i mean not only in in the like waiting for the sort of final text of what the budget will be but in the fact that this is through a budget and not through specific you know, longer lasting legislation that there's sort of a lot of vagueness in what exactly this will look like and sort of like how long even certain things 
will be sort of uh, provided for. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think obviously this is sort of the condition in which like Democrats like strike, you know, larger policies now, uh, which is, you know, in a way more precarious. And um, you're essentially relying on all of this stuff to happen simultaneously and to be drafted in a very short period of time. You know, like a good example of this is the, you know, proposal to expand Medicaid, which uh, Tammy Baldwin from Wisconsin (laughs) and Raphael Warnock uh, put out. The plan is, okay, we've got these like 12 like holdout states that aren't expanding Medicaid. Uh, So what are we going to do? They they, they can't be incentivized with any amount of money to expand it. So we're just going to create a federal Medicaid program, uh, which will cover the people in those states. And it's like, okay, number one. You you could have just done that to begin with, and right. and you could have just made it Medicare for all. But leaving that aside, <laughs> um, there's so the the bill that actually creates this we think is going to be in the three point five trillion dollar package. It seems like it might be. It also might not be. Um, right. It, it it could easily be excluded given negotiations or given whatever Democrats think the parliamentarian says. You know, uh, but. The big text of the bill that I think is important. So it's like a two page bill. Okay. So very vague. And all this stuff is being negotiated in a matter of like, you know, a couple weeks um, at, at most. The Medicaid Saves Lives Act, which, uh, you know, could ostensibly provide Medicaid coverage to a lot of people. The question is, how is it going to do it? And the first provision of the bill says, as soon as possible, quote, after the date of enactment, uh, the Secretary of Health and Human Services shall directly or by contract establish (laughs) a program that offers eligible individuals opportunity to enroll in health benefits coverage. So while the bill says, okay, it has to be such and such coverage, it can't have copays, it can't have cost sharing, just like Medicaid, the question is, how is it going to be administered? Is it going to be administered through, say, the exchanges, i.e. by contract? Right. Or is it going to be administered by CMS, in which case it essentially would be like Medicaid, Medicare, mm-hmm. right? Um, but you can imagine right now, like, what's happening? Well, some insurers that are currently offering plans on the exchanges are getting into the, you know, you know, cracking open their you know plans uh, in case of emergency break glass um and they're like how can we <laughs> you know become the sort of provider so like this question of like is this going to be a transformative reform that like essentially like breaks the seal like creates a, a path for like expanding uh medicare coverage to more populations or is it just going to be like a path towards more essentially privatization that isn't resolved and one of the reasons like it's not be resolved is because it's being included like that's that's just the way the policy works in this in this like space of like doing it through reconciliation. So, you know, ostensibly a lot more people could be covered. But like on what path does it place the future of American health insurance? That question seems vague to me. Right. I mean, it honestly is very reminiscent of the proposal that Biden sort of tripped over during the primaries um, <laughs> in the debates. Remember where he was like, oh, I'm going to do a public option where I'll expand. Med- I mean, well, we're just going to do Medicaid. We're going to have Medicaid, but at like a buy in level at a federal level, we're going to expand Medicaid in states that didn't expand Medicaid. And so you kind of have this, I think, frame 
framing that's that's really produced from this that's actually like kind of twofold. And one is the idea, obviously, that we were making fun of moments ago about this being some sort of historic New Deal-like policy overhaul of some kind. Like, you know, that's obviously false just from the fact of the matter of, as you're saying, Phil, like how it's getting passed through budget reconciliation necessarily limits what it can even do, right? But, you know, the other thing that's kind of being framed is this idea of like, oh, well, we've done this like great big thing, which is obviously going to be subject to the parliamentarian who like is the same person who said, oh, no, you can't do uh, minimum wage increases through the same, you know, so there's like kind of this cop out already to to blame anything that gets left out on this like third party that absolves the Democratic Party of any sort of accountability for who they've dropped or left behind. And then you have this idea of like, well, you know, so we're like asking for these historic reforms and we're fighting really hard. So like, you know, be happy with what we pass for you. Be like, be, you know, respectful and excited about like what's on the table because this is like really going to be great. And there's all these things that are going to be in it. But it's like, okay, what they've released is just a number, What you have going on is also like Larry Summers coming into the White House for a meeting this week. You've got like news reports about, you know, deficit fears, inflation. Like you cannot like the Washington Post described this as a new spirit of austerity. Yeah, you Uh, cannot look at a newspaper without seeing something about, you know, consumer price index or a new housing bubble or whatever. Right. So it's it's this uh, it's I feel like we're getting sort of pulled into this rhetorical trap where we're going to have something incredibly limited that gets like cut to pieces in the in the negotiating process that'll sort of be the spend as the one achievement of the Biden administration writ large. And from there, you don't really have to innovate or proceed. I just I do want to just hone in on the kind of absurdity of this Medicaid proposal because I do find I, I love this like one last heist, like we're going to create capital N, capital M, like new Medicaid or something to operate as some sort of like on certain on a federal level, basically to close this coverage gap because their stated aim. Right. And as the, as was the stated aim of what you were referencing be with like the Biden stuff is mm-hmm. to is to basically like close this gap that exists um, where there are a bunch of people who like both do not qualify for Medicaid or like maybe they live in a state where uh, their Medicaid where Medicaid was not expanded, for example, um, and they don't qualify because the qualification schema are extremely low and punitive in a lot of states that didn't expand Medicaid. For example, they go along the the old metric whereby basically like if you weren't like a parent that you don't qualify for Medicaid, for example. Right. Um, and so, you know, the the idea, the sort of big galaxy brain idea is like, OK, so we've failed to incentivize we failed to properly incentivize states to take on this, unfortunately, fundamentally like political decision to adopt the, uh, you know, like uh, Obamacare, uh, Affordable Care Act, like uh, expansion framework. And so, you know, literally one of the possibilities for expanding Medicaid in this is just to like increase tax credits, basically for <laughs> ACA subsidies, which I guess is I th- would think is probably the contract stuff that Phil is talking about. Um, and then but then, yeah, the other is this like what, like just stand up a new just like a new coverage option for each of these individual states. Well, that's why I'm saying it's like, you know, it would be, they're going to have to admit if CMS is going to administer it directly, they're going to have to administer it through 
their sta- like Medicare contracts. Other, they're not going to cr- they they're not going to create like a whole new like entity. It'll have to be done through like working off the infrastructure that exists for Medicare. The, right. Otherwise, it would make no administrative sense. The way that I like to think about it is okay. So this new program, you know, creates benefits for people who fall in the coverage gap, right? So in Wisconsin, you know, uh, Badger Care a- extends to <laughs> people, including single adults, um, up to a hundred. 100% of the federal poverty line, okay? And then right. this program would expand coverage to people between 100 and 138% of FPL. And so what would happen when your income, as determined by either the federal government or the state government, uh, as it fluctuates, you would roll on or roll off. I mean, already people are rolling on and rolling off Medicaid and right. uh, the the exchanges or, or nothing at all, right? Right. But uh, in this case, it would be rolling on and rolling off like federal and state uh, Medicaid. And even though that's, I guess you could say, comparatively speaking, better than rolling on and rolling off Medicaid coverage from your state and nothing at all, it still introduces interruptions Mm -hmm. that would be uh, unnecessary if, for example, there was one single uh, payer that uh, and you didn't have to worry about these things. I mean, that that's to me, if anything this thing does is it further illustrates the con like just the basic contradictions uh in these programs that are you know purportedly you know you read their like statutory text of these like goals of of like providing you know health care medical access etc like it's just uh like the we make fun of like the word access right it's like oh that's just like this like filler word but like even if you were to take that word seriously it makes no sense yeah <laughs> like, Absolutely. This is, but i mean but i think and i'm not i'm not at all playing devil's advocate um i think the the argument that you know democrats in like in a state like wisconsin where republicans have not you know have just like resolutely said like yeah it doesn't matter that 70% of people favor medicare medicaid expansion we're not going to do it um this is good politics for somebody like Tammy Baldwin like it is good politics for like democrats running in statewide races no doubt but then the but the, the real question is like what will people's experience of care be like what will their experience with the state be like and like one thing we know about uh, these programs is like it's not necessarily the case that uh interacting with uh medicaid like you know makes you think um like ooh, this is such a great interaction with government i really love this program i'm gonna right. vote for tammy baldwin right <laughs> i mean if it's a you know if it's affecting the like yeah so i i don't think like i think that argument has a some holes in it let's just say <laughs> i mean as soon as you said the whole thing about churn which is so common i just was filled with existential dread thinking about how that experience would be like because it's not like the state medicaid network is going to be the same as the federal medicaid network so as you turn from plan to plan it's like you'll still be on medicaid but it's like which one can you imagine trying to explain that to the front desk at a doctor i mean no but that was one of my like existential questions about this they say for example in this like one sheet that uh like oh they'll um the I guess federal program, new Medicaid or whatever will have uh, or supplement like extra Medicaid or something. Medicaid extra. Yeah. (laughs) We'll have, yeah, exactly. Medicaid zero. We'll have, um, we'll have like coverage parity with Medicaid and it's like, which, right, right, right. But like, 
does that mean with the Medicaid rules for that particular state? Because some of the states are already extremely stringent in what they cover and don't cover, right? Or is that some sort of parity with like some with like the the federal minimum level or something like you know what i mean it just it, the there it this this is the kind of this i think is a perfect example it's of happened. the kind of solution that just introduces like 10,000 more problems than it like than the ones it addresses well, i mean it's I mean? it's like literal half baked health policy craft like a total piece of garbage yeah i think no this is a very good point Artie. i think that the I always try to understand the allure of these proposals. Like right. before I critique them, I'm like, what is their allure? Their allure is twofold. Like one is the idea that you can create tangible, visible benefits very quickly right. um, that, that will, you know, mobilize voters. And like that, again, I, uh, that's possible. There are a <laughs> lot of holes in that. Um, but I think that like from a long range perspective, what you are doing is creating and, and like, and recreating over time this uh, structure of governance that divides people, especially the working class, from one another in the way that they experience the state. Yeah. And especially where, you know, Medicaid concern is, is Jamila Mishner's work has like shown over and over again. People's experiences with Medicaid, even though Medicaid is like a, is indeed a life-saving policy right and we we know this people's experiences with it are not great right and like ultimately even if you're not taking our line on this that like medicare for all or bust like universal single payer or bust um there there's just like just adding to this system is like adding to a what I, i regard as like just a fundamentally like conservative like big c conservative mm-hmm. approach to yeah. doing social welfare policy at all right yeah. the idea is like over time medicaid grew and expanded and more and more people have been covered from what was in, initially a really stingy program um but i think as it grew it also like took on these sort of manifestations of this you know of a, a very sort of a draconian uh, a pr- approach to like telling people like what they're, you know, qualified for. And if the democratic project, I'm saying the democratic party leadership project is to somehow do, um, s- segmented universally universalism, even though that's a contradiction in terms, but let's just <laughs> pretend that it isn't. Um, like if that's the goal and like getting there through this, it's like, it's like, I want to connect with people, but uh, I would like to connect through Mark Zuckerberg's mind. I would like to connect through (laughs) Facebook, which is essentially Mark Zuckerberg's mind. Like, no, there are other ways of doing this. Like, you don't have to choose that technology. Uh, But uh, that it it has this sort of like this magical sort of promise that it'll be easier. Right. That it's just going to be like easier. (laughs) And, And what. You know, I think it's like, obviously, there's a million questions you have to answer. There's a million things you have to, like, draw regs for. It's not necessarily, like, like administratively easier than doing something more expensive. It's just, like, it just ties you up and at the end of the day leaves you with more or less a sort of, you know, kind of system that you have now, except uh, crazier and and wackier. (laughs) Just more. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's to anyone right now who might be listening who's like well this sounds like remarkably cynical and you know this is going to help however many million people you know well maybe 
maybe not. I don't think there's like any actual guarantee here. It certainly is obvious and clear that this policy is not designed with recipients in mind. It's designed to placate people who worry about underinsurance who are insured. You know, there's there's nothing about this expansion that's geared towards making it easier to use your health care access. And that's what Medicaid expansion should be really concerned with and forwarding. And any policy that doesn't have that, you know, consideration built in, I think it's not cynical to look at it and say this might make things much worse. This might not help. And there's really no way to know until it's implemented, because until you see how it's going to lay on the table once the regs are implemented, like, yeah, maybe in a couple of years, we'll see how much damage it did. Well, and because that gap is a thing that means like administrative death for people. Right. right? And you can't just um, what we're saying basically is it's inappropriate to just fix that by saying we're going to put some fucking duct tape over this chasm. Right. I mean, churn is incredibly disruptive to care. It really leads to hugely worse health outcomes. And this to me just seems like a recipe for massively increasing churn in a specific segment of the population that doesn't have really a lot of savings to fall back on to support themselves through a health crisis. And increasing complexity too. No, I mean, and I think, you know, it's again, there's the churn right now that's happening is like churn between like, I think basic state medicated, nothing at all. Um, But I think like, again, if you're doing this and the point is to like give people a good experience of the state, Somewhere in there, you got to deal with the question of what happens to people right. when they move from, uh, you know, a hundred and, you know, 101 percent FPL to 100, you know, in, 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 a, in a state like Wisconsin or that, you know, uh, like w- what happens when they're like merging between these systems? Like, it's not enough to just say, like, yeah, we're like, you know, we're filling this gap. It's It's like, how are you how are you transforming the system, which. Again, despite the fact that it does help people, also is a not a not a way that people enjoy, you know, or it doesn't like really give people a lot of dignity or respect in the way that they interact with the with the state. I mean, that's that's sort of fundamental. And like to me, again, it's like you don't even, you know, you don't even have to like take my like opinion on this was just like even if you're like a standard like run-of-the-mill democrat you claim to like want to do this thing like well make it easier for people to access their health care how are you doing that right more paperwork i mean i have a question uh is new medicaid medicaid zero gonna have like is it gonna have a federal uh medicaid estate recovery program as part of it if it's like if it totally has that's a great question medicaid i mean is does that mean that like if they that if they do this CMS is going to have to do not not have to obviously they don't have to do anything but like be made to like if they're operating it as though it were Medicaid are they going to like do fucking estate recovery I mean we've only we've we've rarely talked about uh, this um, if you want to hear more about it go back to our Medicare for all week interview with uh, Libby Watson but Medicaid estate recovery where they someone on Medicaid dies the state can step in and seize um, assets of theirs like that's a fucking speaking of like slowly changing policy that is meant to be a social safety net or whatever uh through a bunch of inappropriate band-aids or duct tape or whatever medicaid estate recovery is a fucking holdover from the kerr mills program that like in the in the episode recently the patron episode where we talked about the history of medicare when i referenced like kerr mills the predecessor to medicaid like 
the qualification criteria and other aspects of the program made people feel like they were going through an inquisition. One of the things I was talking about was the estate recovery process that like persists in Medicaid today. So it's it's amazing. The the Kermill's thing is such a great point to bring up because with Kermill specifically, it was so um, austere and stringent that I think only 10% of people um, who were even qualified were willing to go through the process of trying to be certified because there was this idea that if you were having to submit to this um, investigation in order to get your benefits, that like you're putting up your in- inheritance to your children, any property that you could own on the line in exchange for government health care. And I think ultimately, it's really important to consider how these really sort of Frankenstein's monster policies where you have, okay, let's duplicate it. Okay, let's add a a federal version of Medicaid also in only 12 states and it'll cover, you know, this 50% above the 100% of the federal poverty line qualification, which when was the last time that was like updated relative or is relative to like people's actual lived experience of poverty in the United States? Like, you know, the, the point of the matter is, is, is what does this make people feel who have to use it? What does this make people feel who think that the problem is solved, who do not have to use it? And what does that ultimately do to our ability to win single payer? I think it's absolutely fair to say sometimes these expansions, which we say are maybe ramps or on roads or on a pathway or a one step in a journey, a glide path (laughs) to single payer, that they actually, in fact, are not. I think oftentimes... They can be demobilizing. Yeah, yeah, I think oftentimes these things can be incredibly demobilizing and they can really take the wind out of demands and take the sort of urgency out of a lot of it. And at the same time, the recipients, you know, it's arguable what benefit is actually being conferred to the people that are being included in this new access schema. I think it's also important to note that it's there's a big difference between sort of like spinning wheels to close to like appear to close gaps and actually trying to fix stuff. like move to something and fix stuff. Yeah. Because like, I mean, I think we will, we should probably uh, move on uh, pretty quickly, but you know, uh, we haven't, we haven't really addressed the like expansion of Medicare stuff uh, for example. And I think it's interesting in the, in the, in the context of you just saying that be like, I think one of the things that a lot of people have talked about in like you know the last 24 hours since this uh or or more since this uh like budget announcement came out and they're saying like um the the, like the sanders proposal to expand medicare to cover um dental vision and hearing um which is great frankly looks to be at least currently probably a part of it like i I mean i want to be clear just, just because i've seen so many very strange takeaways on this so obviously like adding hearing vision and dental to Medicare is great. Like it should have been in Medicare to begin with. There's a Already, bunch of other stuff yeah. that should have been in Medicare. Like years ago, reproductive health uh, care is just not covered. And I think they can get away with that because they just, uh, because you know, politically, it's like people think, oh, they're seniors or whatever. They don't also, need any reproductive How would that map and, onto federal Medicaid, also, just saying? Right. But also, like, you know, uh, people with disabilities are on uh, Medicare. A lot of them need reproductive health care. Also, long-term care needs to be whatever. There's so many fucking gaps in Medicare that should have been plugged forever ago. My point is, it's great that, like, uh, vision, dental, and hearing are, by all accounts, it appears 
going to be added to Medicare. The thing is, though, there is a huge difference between, you know, shoring up things in this program and it having sort of any relationship to being like even a step towards Medicare for all. I've seen like a lot of takes on this and I, I know that this is like not how to put it. I understand the compulsion to like think this, but I think it I think the idea that like simply any expansion of Medicare suggests a step towards Medicare for all actually buys into a misconception that I feel like people kind of commonly actually have to push back against that like Medicare for all simply means taking the shitty broken with a lot of patches that need to be filled current Medicare system and then like giving it to everybody. And that's <laughs> absolutely not what it is. I mean, it is weird to me that there is a space to think that like, oh, the, the that instituting Medicare for all a federal universal single payer system, which would inherently like if, you know, if the actual program were passed, like transformatively change uh, health finance and like the relationship of health to capital in the United States to the point of removing private health insurance companies from the equation. Right. Like it's important to remember that the, the Medicare part in Medicare for all is basically tying it to an already established popular program. It can be viewed as expansion, but for the most part, it is like taking the husk of Medicare. Like it could be administered by the same agency or whatever, right? CMS, but like taking the husk of Medicare and turning and like creating a uh, federal universal single payer program out of it. Right. right. I mean, simply like the all the transformations that would need to happen to the current Medicare program, in my uh, in my opinion, to like create something that would be called that could be called Medicare for all, like do not do not mean that like simply adding this or that small like coverage step is actually a meaningful step towards it. Right? right. I mean, I think from both a historical perspective and a technical perspective, if you do not have a uh, an actual change to the payer mechanism. Right. Then it's not a it's not anywhere near a step towards Medicare for all categorically couldn't be. Yeah. Well, what's the but what's the argument? Right. What's the argument that these um, adding these benefits uh, is a like a step towards uh, Medicare for all? Because I think like one thing that we've said, you know, uh, over and over again is that like low simply like lowering the age to like 60 is definitionally like has a political effect that that um, is a ki- kind of spoiler effect uh, right. or puts a thumb on the scale in terms of the status quo because, right, it takes this population that could potentially be highly mobilized behind another alternative that happens to include more people and it gives them something and it, it removes any sort of political motiva- motivation that they might have to... Um, to get to get behind Medicare for all, right? So, like that much, that much, I think we're all clear on. The I think the argument that people make about why this is somehow different is it takes this program and it takes it doesn't it doesn't do that thing. It doesn't like divide up a potential coalition of people that don't ex- you know that they don't currently uh, enjoy Medicare benefits, but it takes benefits that exist and sort of makes them slightly better. So, like the argument is that like it. If it does anything, it reifies the idea that uh, like Medicare is good, right? Because there aren't these gaps in coverage. I mean, to me, I sort of see it as I see it as neither nor. Like, I don't I, I I'm let me put it this way. I don't think that like adding these benefits to Medicare has the like 
hardcore demobilizing effect that that putting millions of new people uh, on Medicare, uh, but like leaving a huge chunk of the population out, like dividing that coalition. I don't think it like is intense as that. But no, I also yeah. just I, I, I and so, I, you know, I, I don't I don't think it has that sort of like, uh, you know, really sort of like counterproductive feedback effect. But I'm just really curious about the argument and it's never really been spelled out to me that like just adding these benefits themselves has a positive uh, political feedback effect. Like, yes. Will it make uh, Medicare better for the people who are currently on Medicare? Yes, it yeah, will. Absolutely. I don't necessarily, but I'm like, I'm really struggling to see how that um, on its own uh, without a lot of other work and a lot of other like agitation and kind of like, you know, emphasis on the boundary and like who doesn't get these benefits and like the fact that like, you know, the, the system is sort of already, um, you know, hemmed in in a lot of important ways, especially where long term care is concerned, by the way, um, like how that gets you like a path towards Medicare for all. Like, it's not a path. It's like a, it's a cul-de-sac. <laughs> um, like I don't, I just don't see how like advances anything, um, necessarily. Right. Like it's, so I, I'm like, I'm dubious. It's like, this is not like, yeah, it's, I wouldn't say it's like demobilizing the same way, but I just, it, it seems just like, what, what are you like? What is the argument? I, I don't see it. <laughs> well, I think, I mean, I think personally what it appears to me, people are saying when they're like, yeah, this is a path to Medicare for all is, um, that by sort of taking dental and vision and hearing off the table that Medicare for all is less of a lift in terms of persuasion or policy agenda, you know, the idea of like, oh, they've done that part. So we don't have to do that part of the fight. But that's not I, I don't think that's like a very um I don't think that's a very good mindset to be going into like policy reform land with, first of all, which is like, oh, thank God you took care of that part for me. Because, you know, as we're saying over and over again, the how of something is taken care of is really important as I, well. I mean, I, I could see it being the suggestion that it solves sort of like a communication problem or something that, uh, you know, for when people say like, oh, well, you, you say you want Medicare for all, but Medicare doesn't cover uh, this and that and the other thing. It's like, yeah, that that you no longer have to explain those those few things. That being said, it like, again, still leaves gaps. And also like that doesn't, to you know, to, to me, that doesn't seem like a meaningful like, I don't know. It's just like, to, I guess I guess what I'm what I'm saying is like vision, dental and hearing care should all be part of Medicare. Celebrate it on those terms. Sure. Celebrate right. that reform as a reform That's right. on those terms. Just like don't don't fucking pretend this is some like victory for Medicare for all. That that's right. It's it's like be, be clear about these things. Like, th will will this like benefit people in the short term? Will this like redound in, in possibly like a good way? Is it like politically in a, in a in a short term sense like politically smart? Absolutely, on every single one of those counts. Is this like oh wow the progressives are winning? No, I don't. I I don't believe that. Uh, it just doesn't. It's like you you would see different kinds of policy if that were the case. Right. I mean, I think the one thing I will say is that the sort of only defense that I'll accept for saying, you know, I feel like this gives me hope about Medicare for all passing is the idea of like, well, you know, now you can't point to it and say, well, we can't change something or we can't update Medicare point. because it's been changed, you know? And so yeah. from, from that standpoint, it's like, that's where, that's where I think is the productive way to look at this as a relationship to Medicare for all, because I, I think that, you know, we, 
all agree that, you know, what this is and how it's being sold are two very different things. And I'm always a believer of not selling someone um, not overselling something, right? Not yeah. selling someone a false product, not selling someone false hope because, you know, it, that's, inc- as we've talked about with Medicaid, you know, that's incredibly powerful. And um, we don't get that many chances to get this stuff right. So it's important to not um, fuck it up for ourselves. Yeah. You know what I mean? Not to be reductive. And it, well, I think that this is the thing. This is already sort of, it has been happening with Medicare for all since the, the debate over it, um, you know, or that since that term became, you know, sort of entered the lexicon. Right. Um, but, you know, I just was reading the paper today and there was a rundown of all the primary candidates for Senate in Wisconsin. And it now says whether or not they're for Medicare for all. But of course, you know, what does that mean? Uh, as you said before, like that, like there is in that term an erasure of all of these material demands that may or may not be included in their understanding of of that proposal and like that to me is like what like the the important like task now is sort of articulating no we're saying medicare for all here is exact here's what we mean like right all long-term care that's covered like you know and here's to whom it applies like he like you will go to the doctor and you will simply not pay anything like you you, you will not worry right. at all about what your bill will be like that. That basic aspect of it needs to be kind of like part of the the fight. And I think they're like even even the debate over like, is this a path towards Medicare for all or not completely like leaves out like, what do we mean when we say this? And I do think that that is the reason to just sort of pause to talk about to have had this discussion for a second, which is just that like. Uh, you know, obviously in, in what you're saying, for example, Phil, we're not saying that like Medicare for all has no like meaning anymore or whatever. What we're saying though, is that like, I think particularly, um, when we, uh, when we talk about Medicare for all, when we talk about a federal universal single payer system, when we talk about the importance of it being all care for everybody with like no cost sharing or whatever, that it is, you know, a, a total reformation of the health system in the United States, basically that like, it is actually very rhetorically important to land that because while, for example, like we we obviously don't have a problem with the term Medicare for all here, like we like and use the term like that being said, the term Medicare for all obviously is the is the like slogan tying it to this popular program, et cetera, Medicare. But that unfortunately does lead to I, my point is it's really important, I think, to be very precise with mm-hmm. rhetoric on Medicare for all because there are kind of two ways that this uh, conflation of current Medicare with like, oh, Medicare for all would just be an expansion of current Medicare can be weaponized uh, improperly. One is actually, I think, in claims uh, like we're talking about where it's like, oh, this, you know, the expansion to include vision, dental and and hearing uh, constitutes uh, like one step towards Medicare for all because it's, you know, in, increasing uh, what what is covered and and that means you know we're 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 like on baby steps to a to a more expansive uh system right which would be like the current medicare system but like for everybody which is not not really the like really not the point but because the other side the the problem with conflating that is you can't you you, i don't think you can conflate it based on convenience because i think any any win or reform could appear convenient to call out like look at this look look good we want a new thing for for medicare and so Mm. this is going to be an expansion for medicare for all i understand being compelled to do that the problem is we also need to continually kind of like while using 
the framework of uh, you know Medicare for all as being tied to the popular program Medicare in in rhetoric be very specific that we're talking about something much more expansive and transformative because otherwise we have like the as as there have been for over the last many years you have these like complete uh like myopic like sniveling goons who will say like ahem excuse me uh do you even know how many problems medicare has uh or how much it doesn't cover you should all be afraid of having medicare for all you know what i mean like there are people who say this right um it is important to recognize and make the distinction that when especially when this is like so easily weaponized against you because the slippage like the the trade-off of tying it to this popular program is people have a lot of associations with this very popular program which i guess is what we're talking about so anyway i mean we've, we've not probably talked this to death but i think well, uh, no i think we i think we can take a lesson from like abolitionists here you know uh it's important to uh just not just accept wins when they aren't actually there and it's important to say like over and over again yes we literally mean Medicare for all, no cost sharing, long term care. You should not be celebrating having to argue for less as a win. Being able to repeat your argument top to bottom and practice it, that's part of the privilege of fighting for this shit. You know what I mean? So no one should be patting themselves on the back like, oh, great. I don't have to refute that point anymore because there's so much you learn in having to fight back that messaging. I mean, yeah. This show is literally proof of it. So not to be corny, you know, celebrate the win. It's great. Yeah, I'm excited about having dental personally as a Medicare recipient. Like be as someone who's on SSDI. Exactly. (laughs) Like really badly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so should we move on to <laughs> yeah. hard pivot? Uh, should we move on to crime? <laughs> it's on your streets. <laughs> Time to shake the crime stick. Oh my God. It's raining murder. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so this week, uh, as I said at the top, the Biden White House released a memo urging cities and municipalities to use federal COVID money to beef up and fund police departments. And my favorite thing about this memo is that it goes through a couple of examples to sort of suggest ways that cities and municipalities could spend the money if they decided to take the the administration's advice. Because everyone knows the American Rescue Plan, uh, which, you know, was the big COVID relief bill that we, you know, we've talked about on the show, uh, you know, when it happened and we have sort of returned to over and over again. Everyone knows the funds in the in this most recent COVID relief bill were meant to uh, fund the police, right? To, right. to yes. make, yeah. My favorite of, of these examples. So like one, it's Biden administration saying, um, you guys should use these money monies to like do this as if cities aren't already doing that all <laughs> over the country. Um, and one of my favorite example is, uh, yes, how are we going to, uh, reduce crime in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Yes. I know. <laughs> Let's use $3 million uh, to expand a gunshot detection system and $5 million to refurbish station houses. <laughs> oh, my God. And, oh, uh, yeah, a million dollars for new cars. We're gonna um, we're gonna use ARPA funds to uh to American Rescue Plan Act funds to uh 
to install a permanent sniper tower outside of the house from Breaking Bad so no one throws a pizza on their roof anymore. <laughs> Sorry, that's a very outdated joke. I guess. Yes. I mean, <laughs> it's actually kind of amazing how many cities in this list also have, um, you know, committed money to like gunshot detection or shot stopper uh, systems too, because these things I thought like, I thought this was like well known as of like, I don't know, five years ago that these things are pretty much totally bullshit. It's like 75% of the time it's a false alarm. So it's basically like installing a surveillance system to audio monitor the poor in order to call in police and sort of call them in fully armed, guns blazing, ready to go. And really just a way to sort of, you know, legally justify having um, random raids of the police into poor communities. Like that's a, I thought that was like a well-known fact and that, you know, you wouldn't necessarily assume that you know, people would be so blatant as to be like, why don't you buy a shot stopper system or whatever the fuck? But I mean, this is what we get with Biden. I just I would like to point out one thing, like one one really important thing, I think, for us to consider as we're having this conversation, because obviously, as probably everybody knows uh, who's listening to this, we are no fan of the police here. Um, (laughs) I think it's really important to to understand how kind of perverse the use of American rescue plan uh, funds for the purposes of expanding police forces and operations is, I know that as, you know, as Phil mentioned before, obviously this has been happening across the country, but the explicit endorsement and like language that we have tied here uh, from the Biden administration spelling out that this is something that is, you know, not only fine, but encouraged. I just want to, I want to cite actually from, uh, um, something that Phil wrote with um, Amanda Cass, his colleague, really briefly going over the three things that American Rescue Plan funds were intended to do or are sort of earmarked for the justifications, as it were, that you have to mm-hmm. uh, employ in order to mm. use these funds and say, you know, report back what you're using them for. It's like the cultural assumption of what the funds are for. So yeah. here, here, not even the cultural legal. assumption, the legal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the, yeah, exactly. So here, here are the, here are the three categories. Um, American rescue plan funds are intended to one address the direct health and economic impacts of COVID uh, or two maintain government services that would otherwise be jeopardized because of COVID related revenue shortfalls or three be infrastructure projects to address needs that existed pre COVID and exacerbated the crisis's impact. So how does this work exactly? (laughs) Well, you know, see the police, the, the populations that were already heavily policed, um, the United States is trying to kill them in disproportionate numbers from COVID. So we want to increase police funding to increase the stress hormones so they'll be more susceptible to COVID. That's how the funding can pass through to police departments. We, we right? all know police are vectors of COVID themselves. So, of course, we've got to you know, fund funding. them more. Yeah. I mean, so the uh, first of all, this <laughs> is not what these funds were supposed to be used for. And, and, and the true irony and, and, and emblematic of what neoliberalism looks like on the ground. For those who say it doesn't have any content, here it is. <laughs> Cities using 
racial equity toolkits and frameworks to justify their decisions in the allocation of funds God. in way and then like as part of that somehow beefing up of police forces which are well known to engage in racially discriminatory practices uh, that that somehow that like fits into the framework somewhere, right? Is it like that? Like where? where how, what what analysis do we do on that? But nevertheless, I mean, this is um, it's being justified. I mean, first of all, it, this is not what these funds were meant meant to be used for at, at all, uh, even remotely. And and any idea that this is going to be like oh, this like transformative, you know, reform, and it's you know. Uh, when the funds are used this way, like you're going to reproduce the same spatial inequalities within cities that we've always had. So if, if the purpose of the funds was to reinforce spatial inequalities, like, hey, this is a great way to use the funds. Um, but the but the narrative that the Biden administration is spinning out is that it's, you know, responding to a rise in violent crime during <laughs> the, the year of the pandemic, which is this very, I think, fraught um, statistical story that number one just completely ignores the vast decrease in violent crime over the last 10 years like that it's like there if anything if there's like an increase it's probably what statisticians would call regression to the mean um which means that there's Mm -hmm. like very like normal statistical variation in violent crime and like what we're seeing is like after a very long decline there's some uh, uptick in, in certain years. Um, so, so this is like, they're like just buying into that story and what they're saying, their defense of, you know, telling cities to like spend more money on this is like, well, we're not really just thinking about, um, the police, you know, violent crime has a lot of different, uh, causes and, and, you know, we're direct, we're telling cities, you know, use this money for public safety, but think more broadly about public safety. You know, there's this so-called like, uh, 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 like the roots, um, uh, you know, root causes of crime, right. Kind of argument <laughs> that, uh, you know, I think is, you know, ha- has, you know, plausible factual basis that like, yeah, uh, unsurprisingly crime does rise when, when you have uh, greater levels of unemployment and greater poverty, like no, no, no surprise, obviously. Right. But, the idea that cities are really going to have an incentive to like, even if that were true. All right. And like this weren't just a regression of the mean. Okay. And, and by administration isn't just owning themselves, which they obviously are. Um, <laughs> the idea that this money, that cities are going to like have an incentive to like use this money in ways that are like, Ooh, novel and innovative. No, they want th- this money has to be spent out within the next four years. They want to, sp- the cities are going to want to spend the money out quickly what does that mean? It means that the money is going to go to the institutions that already exist and have the largest lobbying power within the city, i.e. the police. It's, you know, like the idea that this is going to like, you know, go into like root causes programs that don't exist in some cities or are very organizationally marginal as opposed to, you know, (laughs) buying more toys for the boys. Uh, (laughs) It's a bit absurd to me. And it's like, it's just the the, the best sort of media dodge that I've seen. It's a truly artful media dodge uh, by the administration in defending this thing. Yeah. I mean, what it really is, is this memo is saying, you know what, we are um, making sure to basically co-sign and also encourage and promote using this pandemic relief 
money as a direct sort of pass through stimulus to the parts of the economy that I'm going to use like Miriam Kaba's term for this because I think it's perfect. She calls it the hungry dungeon economies, which are all the sort of like, you know, companies that sell this stuff to the police that that do this work, you know, to the Biden administration, even if that money gets passed through the police into the community to them, that's still creating jobs, right? Because it's creating, you know, the work orders, the renovations. This is, you know, they'll probably say like this hires people outside of the police community. The police are turning around and, you know, investing it in their local community. But it's like, no, what they're actually investing it in is these hungry dungeon economies, which spring up to offer solutions whenever we have a sensationalized wave. Everyone gets all preoccupied with their safety and being protected from the wave of crime. You you know, you see explosions in monitoring software and ankle monitoring programs and making visits more restrictive in prisons and, you know, increasing incarceration, increasing, you know, police patrols, all sorts of stuff like that. It like always goes into these predatory, parasitic industries that just make money off of the warehousing and surveillance of the police state. Well, I mean, and also, you know, it must be stated, too, it is especially perverse that, again, these funds, which are as like you wrote about Phil, for example, that are intended sort of as the the world, you know, are sort of spiritually intended, I guess, or or whatever, as this uh, or rhetorically intended as um a way to, you know, make sure that, I don't know, city and state public health uh, departments are funded and stuff like that. Or like, for example, to go further into other uh, things, which are also actually connected to the domain of public health, things like uh, making sure that um, cities have clean drinking water, etc., are instead being, again, not only that those funds are being diverted by uh, police departments, which is part of the reason that police departments are terrible parasites on like every little every tiny little component of fiscal federalism right but like not only that they're doing that but that the biden administration is encouraging it and they are specifically encouraging it i want to be like really clear because they are effectively the the only reason i see for them to be doing this is to like respond to the completely bullshit conservative talking point like revanche's conservative talking point that has been mainlined in like a bunch of conservative and neoliberal press that there is like a crime wave going on, which is mostly propped up by like goosed statistics that is that are (laughs) being put out by stuff like police unions who are just like really actively trying to make sure that they don't become the subject of a defunding or abolition campaign Right. I mean, it's it's just right. Really, it's just so it's like it's so blatant. And in particular, I think the contrast of like what these what these what this theoretically is, you know, suggested to be uh, done to support while people are being while still people are fucking dying from COVID in the United States, while still people are being fucking evicted because eviction moratoria are coming and have come undone in various states. While, for example, uh, as maybe we will get into, maybe we won't like, while, for example, like in New York City, because the federal government has stopped funding like the program for housing, um, one at least one quarter of the unhoused who needed housing during the COVID pandemic in hotels, like while those people are being actively pushed out of the hotels and into shelters that are Bust. like, yeah, yeah, <laughs> this is. 
I don't even know why I, I just like I laugh because I can't fucking take it. It is like so grotesque. And I and I mean I think this is like n- best exemplified by this quote from uh, Democratic mayoral candidate elect. God damn it, Eric Adams, as he came out of the Biden tete-a-tete about how to throw money at a wall for cops. Mm-hmm. Um, he said. We, Eric Adams said, quote, we spend too much time looking at the role police play. We can't continue to respond to symptoms. By symptoms, I assume that he means police murdering black people out in the open, no matter what, because they feel like it. Um, It's time to respond to the underlying causes of violence in our city. This president is making it clear he's going to redefine the ecosystem of public safety. And that includes identifying the role of police, schools, families, resources, employment. This is where we need to go as a country. What a call towards studying anything other than police violence. I mean, but but also like let's let's just let's just pretend to take them at their word okay i'm gonna pretend (laughs) to do that for just a second all right so the idea we're gonna go back to the root causes and uh okay as we've already said (laughs) that's absurd because again um so this is to put this in context this (laughs) amount of money in arpa it's the largest one-time transfer of money from the federal government to the states that has multiple purposes and cities can essentially like use it for what they want it's the largest instantiation of that since like 1972 so this is like a potential this is a huge huge amount of like state capacity that local governments are getting okay so like how local governments exert their power over the people who live there will change as a result of this and how will it change right well so arpa in the way that the cities are planning to use this money just go like look in your local paper and see if it's being covered really it's not uh, you might find it on a back page. And and in that case, it's being announced. Like the city announces that it's going to u- intends to use the money in this way. Right. Yeah. And there might be some like public input at some point. But you don't see there's not like protests or like real mobilization around this. Like city politics, like in a way, kind of it enables people to like cut out that uh, that that potential democratic kind of impulse. Right. But there's two more, I think, really, really pernicious things here. One is like this is a one-time um, transfer of money, meaning like you got to sort of use it, you know, in in like the next you know four years or so. Um, so cities are going to be looking for investments that do two things: one, investments that generate future revenue, own source revenues for themselves, right? And two, investments that improve or keep stable their municipal bond rating because most of the way that cities finance capital investment uh, because the federal government doesn't provide support for cities regularly is through <laughs> private debt, right? And so you want to yeah. keep your municipal bond rating high. Well, police have a way of being really nice for both of those things. First, uh, police have a way of improving municipal revenues because Cities increasingly finance themselves through, you guessed it, fines and fees, especially in cities that have their own municipal courts. uh, They raise fine and fee revenues in a way that actually is in proportion to decreases in per capita property taxes. So as per cap, they can ramp down 
per capita property taxes by increasing uh, the uh, use of fines and fees to like finance city operations. So like police and policing and over policing have a way of feeding back into revenue uh, that makes this a smart like very, very disturbingly a smart investment, uh, at smart, least some yeah. cities, right? It gets worse, though, which is that the other aspect of it is that cities are trying to maintain their municipal bond rating. And the way that they do that is through disciplining uh, their populations. Um, one way in like in the standard neoliberal story um, and what we saw after the Great Recession um you can maintain your municipal bond rating by simply cutting social services, right? And this is like the story of Fear City in New York, uh, the Giuliani administration, uh, like just cutting public hospitals, trying to eliminate rent control and failing actually to also improve improve the municipal bond rating in New York City. Um, (laughs) But uh, the way that cops like factor into this is like disciplining your population as a way of um, improving your uh, municipal bond rating, but like it improves what bond raters re- refer to as like, yeah, the quality of life in the city. So it's like not surprising that cities with larger minority populations in a way that looks a hell of a lot like redlining have lower municipal bond ratings systematically. And it's been shown yeah. over and over again. And more than that, the people who are responsible for municipal bond rating have admitted that they do this uh, directly. Um, in a uh, in interview with the president of S and P, uh, which does oh this, uh, Brenton Harry's in a 1993 <laughs> interview, he said that the rating agencies take quote demographic issues into account because quote <laughs> this particular mix of population requires more welfare payments, more housing. They're more of a drain as opposed to oh. being more oh of a contributor, God. right? So you can imagine this. Like, what's different than the Great Recession? Well, there's a hell of a lot more money going into cities. So it means that like the roll up feature of neoliberalism where we just like reduce social services, that might be a little bit harder this time, although I'm sure some cities will still try to do it because they'll argue that uh, we have to spend this money in ways that will like generate uh, uh, generate capital investment long term if we want to keep our bond rating high. But the other piece of it is cities have a hell of a lot more money now to invest in their disciplinary apparatus, which also might improve their ability to take on private debt. So like the point here is that, uh, yeah, this is a huge potentially transformative um, like amount of money. But from what the Biden administration is doing and from what cities seem to be doing as well, there's some really, I think, authoritarian, like pretty, pretty clearly like authoritarian capitalists, like instantiations of what that transformation is going to look like yeah i mean so well put phil and i think actually the complete this whole completely authoritarian uh schema it's appropriate actually the um i just kept thinking i just kept thinking about that uh phraseology a a new spirit of austerity actually Mm -hmm. where where you're talking about that but like um this whole schema i think is also really well demonstrated in the situation in New York city right now that we wanted to talk about really briefly, which is the push to basically 
as quickly as possible, I guess, end the support of unhoused people in hotels that the city has been doing for months now. Yeah. And, and I think we'll have to probably push this over to Monday. So here's a pitch as to why you should become a patron so that, you know, you can hear us continue this conversation. But I do want to just bring in this like one really weird and interesting thing that's like sort of come out as part of the story, which is that, you know, so the city is trying to um, offload this expense from being its problem, right? So they're trying now that the federal funding has been cut, they're trying to bust people out of the city, which is also in response to the social pressure generated by the crime wave hysteria, right? Which has been largely blamed in New York press on homeless people specifically, which, you know, we talked about a little bit in our episode about Andrew Yang, right before the mayoral uh, primary in New York, where he was saying, you know, what we got to do to get rid of the mentally ill who are attacking Asian Americans in in New York is like reopen the asylum system. Yeah. So but, you know, the the interesting thing is the city is saying, oh, well, we've got to get tourism back up again. Like we've got to open up these hotel rooms for tourists. This is why we need to do this right now. And it's hard to imagine it being more blatant. I know. And it's interesting because like hotel owners don't want the city to end the program because they want the subsidies to continue. So they've been lobbying the city to like continue the program for their own selfish gain because they say once the quote unquote homeless leave, they're going to have to renovate every room to get rid of the stigma of unhoused people having stayed there. And I have two quotes. Jesus Christ. Um. So this is from an article in Curbed. Uh, Owners also say that the realities of the market require them to do expensive, months-long, top-to-bottom renovations where homeless people lived in order to remove any stigma that might discourage future guests. The article continues to interview this guy, and he says, the word is out, your hotel is homeless, so to attract the business back, we have to do a complete renovation of the rooms. I'm talking about it has to be gutted completely. So now they're angling for city funds to help renovate the homeless out of their hospitality businesses we can't have the the the, the basic memory the even like the even just like the <laughs> like the possible idea that someone would it's like, like what are they gonna like have to rename the hotel like they have to rebrand like oh no don't worry homeless people never slept like our promise to you in addition to God. a free breakfast buffet in the morning is the is the signature promise that no homeless person has ever slept here <laughs> We brought a shaman in who cleansed the room of the homeless vibe. It's okay. You can stay here now. Yeah. So we'll have to revisit that because in the context of this whole conversation of the the municipal bond ratings, it has a a particular way that it hits different, so to speak. Um, So become a patron, patreon.com slash death panel pod. If you want access to all of our weekly bonus episodes and to support the show, we really appreciate it. And um, follow us on social media at deathpanel underscore. That's all for now. We'll catch you Monday in the patron episode. And as always, Medicare for all now. Solidarity forever. Stay alive another week.
engordar Hay cosas que no se pueden encontrar Hay cosas que no se pueden arreglar Lo que está roto deja de quemar Que, 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 quemar Me da huevo que me va a matar Este aire no puedo respirar Es más que no puedo borrar, borrar Did you see Spike Lee queered Bitcoin in his new commercial <laughs> yes. for cryptocurrency? Yeah. I've been waiting for this, right? This is the, like some version of this was like in the algorithm pre-programmed in like 2010. This is like as soon as, this, this you know, as old. soon as that Satoshi white paper came out, it was like, you know, <laughs> that just it portended the existence of the Spike Lee video. Meet the new money. Same as the old money, just no, a little no, bit different. You know Same is? as the old, old money, actually. Right. Same as the- it's it's the David Cross bit about like squiggles. Like, uh, yeah, you know, your grandfather had bagels, falls on the floor, just rolls, rolls, rolls. Like you got squiggles, fall, <laughs> squiggle falls on the floor, just stays right there. That's yeah, that's Bitcoin. Old money is out. New money is in. I will say, though, you know, I do think it is a, just a little unfair that like the entirety of Rose Emoji Twitter jumped on Superstructure for saying money is queer. And now Spike Lee's saying it. And where is everybody? Huh? Exactly. 